Welcome to the Big Beatles Sort Out, a show in which I, author and musician Gary Abbott, attempt to finally decide my favourite Beatles recordings by scoring each and every one for lyrical content, musicality and production. I will be assisted in this venture by my brother and resident Beatles expert Paul Abbott. Each episode we will explore and score five songs from the Beatles' full recording catalogue. The songs will be drawn at random to try and avoid any favourite album or era prejudices skewing the results as we go along. Thanks for joining us as we try to sort out the Beatles. To kick us off, we have an interesting collection of two singles, two album tracks and even a cover. But first, let's say hello to our Beatles guide, Paul, who, by the way, is also a talented podcaster and musician, amongst other things, which we'll chat a bit more about later. Hello, Paul. Good evening or afternoon or whatever it is, wherever you are. It's definitely evening. We're in the same country, Paul. Oh, OK, fair enough. Um, unless Liverpool has its own time zone. I did a podcast recording last night with someone in LA, so I, do I know where I am anymore? I'm too international. <laughs> you need um, a series of clocks on your wall with all the different time zones, Stoke-on-Trent, Liverpool, LA. Yeah, all the key places. Before we carry on, I believe you want to make it clear that you are against the whole premise of this podcast. I am only here because I object to it in its uh, base principles. And I've loved the Beatles for so long, and one of the things that happens with any nerdy thing is it turns into a collection now we've got a collection of 215 songs here mm-hmm. and it's it's something that's happened over and over again in the music press and now on social media often if you especially if you follow lots of beatles accounts like i do about which is best what is best and there's always lots of debate it's a big thing in in pop music history this idea of sorting and creating a canon of work and it can be broad as in you know all of rock music however you define that or it could be like specific like within the beatles catalogue so i don't think it should be sorted because i don't think i've got a favorite and i don't think there's any i don't like although it's entirely possible that i may have some objections to register here and there but fundamentally i think all beatles songs are brilliant great and that's why i wanted it i wanted you to come on and be the voice of reason but also my um my uh, advisor in all things Beatles due to your deep love of them. And you might you might be right, but it is an experiment that could lead to great things. You never know. I mean, it is my list of... I will, I will stress it's not the list of best Beatles songs. It's, it's my list. Um, but if nothing else, the random selection does throw up some interesting bedfellows, as I think we'll find in this first episode. So your objection is duly noted and ignored. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, the experiment continues. I do, however, like the notion of this being a random choice because it take it does remove the context of the albums and the singles' relationship to the albums, singles and the EPs and things like that. So I'm excited to see what sort of mad order these things come out in and, and how they appear alongside each other in these little episodes, in these little mini blocks of five. So that, at least, I'm interested in. Good. I'm glad there's something in this that you, will keep you coming back, hopefully. So, just a note on scoring for this first episode. The scoring is out of 100 for each of the three categories of music, production and lyrics. The average of the scores will be used to produce a rank as we go along and more songs are scored. Eventually, this may lead me to revise earlier scores, which I reserve the right to do, but I will try and keep it as objective as possible, if that is even possible. We will see. Mm-hmm. So, the first song to come out of the random Beatle machine um, is... Something. Mm-hmm. 
So, Paul, can you give me some something facts? Well, it's interesting. We've started right at the towards the end of their their career as a band, and we've started with a George Harrison song. So, information-wise, this was a, a double A-sided single with "Come Together," which was released in October 1969 from the Abbey Road album. Both those tracks are on the album as well. It spends 12 weeks in the chart in the UK, peaking at number four. Recorded in April, May, July of 69, with some overdubs in August. There's quite a lot of information about this now because it was on the recent Abbey Road reissue as well, so there's loads of background in there as well as all the other books you can look at. And, of course, we've got a guest artist in Billy Preston, who was obviously on quite a few bits and pieces around the time. A nice 21-piece orchestra scored by George Martin. And, yeah, it's a fantastic song which almost didn't become a Beatles song because when George Harrison wrote it, he, he... just considered giving it to Jackie Lomax, one of the artists who was signed to Apple Records. But I'm glad he didn't. So to start off with the music, um, for me, it's perhaps unsurprising that George Harrison's much lauded love song opens with an instantly memorable guitar riff that continues to almost duet with him throughout the song. I think his lead guitar is one of the elements that stands this aside from other lesser love songs, which probably is most of them. Another element I really um, enjoy is the melodic bass line that fills the gaps that a boring root note progression would probably expose. But I do believe some criticism has been levelled at Macker for his kind of bass on this one, Paul. Yeah, it's notably by Ian MacDonald who wrote Revolution in the Head, which is one of the you know foundation books of Beatles lore. Um, lore's perhaps not the right word, but scholarship whatever you want to say. It's a very important book, but it's not necessarily something I agree with on all points. But he says, basically, that McCartney's baseline on this is sort of fussy and hurried and and, and over the top, really. I sort of see what he means, and if you ever look at it you know, in detail, it is. He never stops. McCartney's almost like, I can't leave an empty space on this. Mm-hmm. But everything in this is sort of lyrical and flowing. So it's in the it's in the mode of the thing. And I think the the fact that it's not a McCartney song is he all he had to do was concentrate on this bass line. So he's really focused on it and, and done something a bit different to the other things he's been doing. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the two possibilities when it comes to McCartney's bass lines on George Harrison's songs, which he's done he, he's done in other places as well where he's perhaps put more in than you'd expect, is one that he's just got nothing else to concentrate on. Or two, the the, the more negative reading is that he feels that it needs it to put, elevate it as a song. I'd like to think it probably is the first one, really. Mm. You know, I think, you know, oh, I've got nothing to think about but the bass are. And for me, it's an integral part that stops this just being a, just a George song and turns it into a unified Beatles composition. It's It's quite hard to to judge really because there's very little background information on what the sessions in for Abbey Road were like particularly there's not many photographs that have been published even with this new stuff so mm. it's I don't know it's it seems like a good group effort and but uh, you know McDonald's criticism is you can understand the place he's coming from yes indeed so to summarize it is an excellent performance, I think, especially by George on his vocal and the guitar, and I therefore score the music for something a very strong 85. On to the production then. Um, so on the production, which I define as being the added instrumentation, the arrangement, the recording and the balance of the mix. Um, here, 
we have just what a love song needs. Some syrupy strings and sustained organ to move between the flow of the verses to the staccato of the chorus. It is expertly pitched and balanced to the polished degree we expect from George Martin on Abbey Road. And although perhaps not his most experimental or complex work, it is just what the song needs. I am going to score something at a mighty 80 for production. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, it's it's certainly not experimental, but it makes very good use of the studio that they had access to at that point, the, the amount of tracks they have. And I think it's got a very clever George Martin score, where which is... It's lush, but it's balanced and, and sympathetic. And it's it's got its own little clever moments in there as well. And it plays very well against Billy Preston's keyboard part. It does indeed. And I think this is um, an example of what Phil Spector didn't do on The Long and Winding Road. Yeah. Okay. So, on to the lyrics. Um, the music is doing the heavy lifting, I think, with the sentiment of this song. The lyrics appear to be ultra-romantic, but they do have a bit of a strange passive-aggressiveness to them, i.e., I don't want to leave her now, you know, I believe in how, and you're asking me, will our love grow? I don't know. It's almost a bit of a veiled threat in a way, but then love can be contradictory, so perhaps it was intentional. Um, however, the choice of the vowel sounds with moves me and woos me and shows me blends into and informs the melody, which is very clever. And um, this one's actually about a real person, isn't it, Paul? Well, it's, yeah, it's about Patty Boyd. And the funny thing is, of course, that it's only a handful of years before their relationship falls apart anyway, and he does move on. Mm. The thing with George is he, he was never a brilliantly confident lyricist. And I think that's probably what held him back in comparison to McCartney and Lennon, who seemed to be able to either turn out this brilliant stuff really easily or not be ashamed of the stuff that wasn't so great. They knew they just had to produce it. Yeah. And it it always took George a little bit longer to come out with stuff. And actually, in this case, what it's done is is produce this song, which is, you know, it's, it's love song material first and foremost. It's actually... A, you know, directed towards a human being of a real person rather than the nebulous mm-hmm. concept of, of love. But it remains unspecific enough to be fairly universal. Yeah. Yes, it it, it is. And I, I think it it's um, like a lot of this song. It's what a love song needs. Um, and I bestow upon the lyrics then a score of 60. That brings something's overall average score to 75 so our first one is in the bag next up we have day tripper so paul day tripper what's all that about them well, it's amazing that the second one to come out of the bag is another double A-side single. In fact, it's the first ever double A-side single. It was uh, backed with... Oh, see, saying backed with doesn't actually... isn't right. I They were both backed with each other on a double A-side. Uh, we Can Work It Out. It was released in December 1965, so it's essentially a single attached to Rubber Soul. But obviously these tracks aren't on there, as the majority of Beatles singles weren't. It's... It goes into the charts for 12 weeks. It's five weeks at number one. Recorded on one day on the 16th of October 1965. As far as I understand, it was deliberately devised to become a single because they knew they needed one. And that's probably what leads to it being essentially a guitar riff song. 
they did three takes of which one was a false start so it wasn't a real take anyway and and that was it for the backing track that's all they needed and that's it's just energy i agree it's one of the greatest riff-based Beatles rockers out there, I think. Uh, it's amazing to hear, actually, it was the uh, done in, in, in only three takes, um, or, or what two, really. Um, it may even be the best riff-based Beatles song. Who knows? At least It's at least one of the most memorable and accessible, especially if you're a new guitar or bass player. Because it's in, it's in E as well, so it's, it's open string start on the, on, the, on the riff as well as the, on the guitar, and then just moving up to the next string. So it is actually it's a very simple one to learn you know, quite easily and quickly. It is, um, and I think we probably both um, learned that quite early on in our guitar yeah. and bass playing careers. Um, Ringo is hammering away at the driven heavy beat all the while, adorning it with these little fluent little flourishes and fills that are so, um, his signature, really. McCartney's belting out his vocal um, which to match the energy, and the backing is so perfectly close and thick with the harmony. Um, it is um, It is just energy like you say obviously with it being kind of proto-rock it is what it is in terms of complexity and repetition so overall i give it a score of 65 for the music that seem uh, about right yeah i mean it's not super complicated it's uh, one thing i will say is it's not just simply mccartney it's lennon and mccartney double tracked together on the lead sometimes it's in harmony one of the funny things about it is you can sometimes hear the one overpower the other in, in not in a bad way, in sort of whose voice you most identify in it as well. So, yeah, it's a real sort of proper shouter for the pair of them. That, that's I've learnt something already, Paul, so it was worth inviting you along despite your objection to the mm. the whole premise. So, um, on to the production. Uh, we're a little way off the era of lots of overdubs and added instrumentation just yet. So there's not much to say that in, in that the recording of this song does the job of carrying that feel and energy of a good live take, which, as you've said, it almost it basically is. The only bit that I think lets it down a little for me somewhat is just that weedy little guitar sound in the mid-eight build when it's going up the scale. For me, that feels like in later years they might have replaced that with something a bit meatier and a bit more sustained, um, although they do bring it that energy up with up with the vocals building in the background but there's not a huge amount to get your teeth into production wise so i'm scoring it a solid 62 the lyrics well it took me so long to find out that this may be a song about drugs mm, yeah well tripper is the key i mean the beatles are quite happy to write comedy songs and they're quite happy to write you know nods and a wink type songs so is it that, or is it just a bit more about, I don't know, a type of person? I think this is the thing. I mean, I'm not, I'm no innocent, but it, it, I, I only, literally, only made the Tripper connection very, very recently. Um, I mean, at my most naive, when I was an actual child, I, I did think this was literally just about going on holiday. Um, <clears throat> then I kind of graduated to thinking, realizing it was probably about a fling with a with a, a woman. Uh, and only now in my late 30s, I'm realising that the Tripper connection, and this isn't the kind of trip that you go on with your Aunt Mabel, if you have an Aunt Mabel, of course. Well, uh, there's, they were saying it was a, a bit of a sort of, a cheeky's a bit of a funny word, but it's a sort of cheeky nod to sort of people who would like drop acid at the weekend or take drugs at the weekend and then back to the normal job on a on a Monday, you know, it's it's... It was that sort of thing. But also the one thing that's pretty obvious when you notice it is that 
she's a big teaser is you know in terms of syllables is simply she's a prick teaser uh, oh yes uh, so it's pretty obvious yeah um yeah and that's one of the good thing about that is you can read the lyrics the different ways and it's clever of them to be able to release something commercially that didn't cause an uproar when it had those actual meanings in them and is like you say you know clever in a kind of in a in a, in a funny way as well when you think about it in, in some ways mm. which is perhaps where the real skill lies for that multi-layered reasoning i award the lyrics to day tripper a score of 62 which brings the overall score to 63 mm. so next up is you're going to lose that girl you're gonna lose that yes, girl yes, you're gonna lose that girl you're gonna lose yes yes you're gonna that lose girl. that girl if you don't take her out tonight... What can you tell us about You're Gonna Lose That Girl? A song that I mainly knew because I watched the film Help over and over and over and over and over again for a long time before I even had the Help album, I think. And it's a really good sequence in that film. It was recorded on the 19th of February 1965 before they tickled off to film in the Bahamas. So it was, it was knocked off quite quickly. And it was... Obviously, as I say, it was in the, featured in the film Help, and it was on the Help album, which was released in August of 1965. And the musical features that I think are most interesting on it are the guitar sound of the solo, which I th- believe is George Harrison's new Fender Stratocaster he just started using around that time. And you've also got Ringo's Mad Bongos all the way through it. Mm. And, yeah, there's quite a lot of sort of washy reverb throughout as well, and all that sort of added together makes it sound slightly different to quite a lot of the stuff around it at the time so it's a it's an unusual one for an album track it's very album track yeah i mean i have one main problem with this song which is that the version that plays in my head when i think about it is apparently better than the version that they committed to tape Mm -hmm. um in my head this rollicks along at a nice pace with a catchy tune and it's a solid kind of beatles pop classic what I actually found when I listened back to it um, is a song behind the pace and seemingly always trying to catch up with itself, sounding a bit too jangly and jarring with the the hurried bongos on top of it. It's a shame, but it just feels like it's a rushed song. Well, I think the bongos thing is is key to that. I think sometimes when they felt... And it's probably George Martin trying to paper over the cracks a little bit in in one or two... on one or two occasions and this is one of them where he would add something extra on top and in this case it's the bongos to try and keep it speeding keep it feeling like it's moving as they go along because it does sort of it sits back on the beat yeah it always feels like it's speeding up to me it never quite feels right and and i think you you you're right with the use of reverb and and added percussion to try and cover it up a little bit so as such i'm only giving this a 40 for the music which while catchy it's a bit under underdeveloped really and a bit too loose um which will lead me straight into the production which i'm not going to say much more about because of that it, it, it that seems to be at fault here at the very least because of general quality control you know i think i know being rushed is obviously something that they they probably didn't have much choice about when at, at this point in their career but it does feel a shame that someone didn't go, look, you know, let's just try that again and get that beat solid, you know. I do think it was a bit of a, a fixer-upper. It was, and and unfortunately they, they, they didn't fix it up enough. So for production for me, it also gets a 40 for this one. Um, 
take it. And so for the lyrics, um, if it only were that the lyrics would be the saving grace, but um, unfortunately, a slightly arrogant chauvinistic threat doesn't make the best poetry, really. It seems well-meaning in the sense that the subject of the song is being encouraged to treat his girl right, but only kind of under the threat of losing ownership of her to the protagonist, you know. So yeah. on one hand, it's 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 got a positive message and then it kind of undoes itself straight away. It's not exactly Romeo and Juliet. Um, but I don't think it means to come across like this. Um so, I mean, do you? Do, what do you think? Well, I think that it's certainly not unique in terms of its subject matter or how it's expressed. So much pop music has basically the same type of lyric in it. And and the thing that the Beatles could do, and I mentioned this before when I was talking about something, is Lennon and McCartney, if they needed to write a song, they'd just write a song. And yeah. sometimes that meant just playing with some of the tropes of other pop songs around them. Mm-hmm. The difference was usually that even their ones with bad lyrics had some other massively redeeming feature like the vocal harmonies, which I do like on this song. And mm. it, yeah, so they've just basically gone back to pop song lyric number three or whatever, and that's what it turns out to be. Yes. Yes. And as such, I'm going to score this a slightly measly 45 for the lyrics, which brings the overall total to a surprisingly low 41.7. <laughs> That sound can mean only one thing. It's the Ruttles klaxon. <gasps> Paul, if you will. The Ruttles, my favourite Beatles that aren't the Beatles. The comedy musical film made by Eric Idle for Lorne Michaels of Saturday Night Live fame in 1978. Or the music by Neil Innes and a bunch of other fantastic musicians. Uh, so there was a, a soundtrack album in 1978 and there was other recordings including a album called Archaeology in the 90s, basically off the back of when the anthology came out with the Beatles. I I love Neil Innes. Uh, he died in uh, December of last year, and it was something I find very sad because he was one of my absolute heroes. Mm-hmm. But of course, because it's all Beatles-inspired, we can try and pin some of the Ruttles tracks against some of the Beatles tracks. And it doesn't work literally exactly in every case because some are amalgams of different aspects of Beatles things and Neil Innes didn't write them always to be oh this will be a parody of that dot 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 but the in this instance what we've got is a song called Now She's Left You which lyrically is a sort of response to you're going to lose that girl it's like the next step in the thing Mm -hmm. and this was released on the archaeology album based on a track that they recorded for the original album back in the 70s so it's it's like an album filler track for the Ruttles that does the same sort of thing that You're Gonna Lose That Girl does. And so it's uh, that's one of our first little tie-in things there. Yes, and so let's have a little snip of that so people can uh, get a, a feel for the Ruttles. Now she left you, left you for another guy. Now she left you. I do like, especially how this is an answer to you're going to lose that girl. Like, say, a continuation of the idea. It's almost like um, you're going to lose that girl, um, the sequel. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, so now she's left you. Very good work there by Mr. Innocent, and, and as you say, a very sad loss. I suppose if people don't know the Ruttles uh, or Neil Innes from his own solo stuff that he did as well, he was a brilliant solo songwriter, and it wasn't all just sort of comedy stuff. It was very funny. They might know him from the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band and possibly known from his association with Monty Python, where he realistically was the seventh Python, used to do the stage shows with them, did some of the TV bits with them as well. So, well, he might even know him from things like Puddle Lane or something like that. It's He's he's been around a long time. Well, see, I'm saying that now, like he's still here, but he's yeah. he's done a load of stuff and he, he met, meant a lot to a lot of people. Indeed. And there are around 40, is it 40 Ruttles songs? Yeah. Well, basically, we've got two albums and a couple of bonus tracks. As, okay. So it's somewhere between 36 and 40, depending on whether we're going to be super literal about some of the other versions of Ruttles things. So if we do, you know, although you say, as you say, they're not all a one-to-one, if we, we will be pinning them to one song every now and again. And if the law of averages is anything to go by, they should pop up about one in every five episodes. But what's the betting that we'll have an episode where every song is a Russell's mm-hmm. trigger? So. <laughs> You'll, that'll be your bonus, um, mm. your bonus day. But um, so thanks for that. Um, our first Ruttles klaxon in our first episode. Mm. But moving then back to the world of the Beatles. Um, next up, we have You Won't See Me. I will lose my mind if you won't see me. You won't see me. So this is an album track from 1965, but this time the album is Rubber Soul. We've also had the single, of course, Day Tripper before. Rubber Soul itself as an album was released in December of 65. This was recorded in November in the very last session, I think, for the album. It's got a couple of key musical features in it as well. One is that the organ on it, which is very simple, is essentially one note, is played by Mal Organ Evans. I was doing air quotes when I said organ there. Mm-hmm. And we've also got, uh, a notably, we've got an overdubbed hi-hat to accompany Ringo's drum parts as well. And so, yeah, it's an album track from Rubber Soul. Okay. Um, and for the uninitiated, Mal Evans is the Beatles' lifelong roadies and collaborator, isn't he? And yeah, he's around from the very early days. Neil Aspinall and uh, Mal Evans were their, you know, stalwarts of the the Beatles touring, recording. You know, it's just a They're great part of the legend, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, absolutely. Are. Great. I mean, I like what the Beatles are reaching for in this song, uh, but they are reaching a bit. It doesn't always feel they're they're in their natural place with it. The jaunty off beats is being carried by the piano backing and and the hi hats, um, while Paul's bass seems to want to fill all the gaps again. Perhaps a sign that he wasn't too sure himself of of the song. The only consistent part to hold on to really is that the guitar stabs that sound lovely. Um, but I like that they're obviously having to work at this to get something out of it. With with more time, they could have possibly taken it further. Who 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 knows? I'm going to give it 55 for the music on this one. But, Paul, you have some issues with this, don't you, I think? Yeah, having said up at the start of this programme that I don't really have uh, any Beatles songs I don't like or Beatles songs that I think are better or worse than than each other, This it's amazing that this has come out in the first episode. This is the only one that I have a real issue with. And it's not so much an issue with the song as a song. 
because I genuinely like it. I do. And like the guitar part, I love the stabbing guitar part. I, I like the sound of the instruments. I like the energy. I love the backing vocals. But it goes on too long. And because it goes on too long, it sags. This is their longest song by this point. It's three minutes, 22 seconds, which isn't long in modern standards. But by for them, it is. And it stays their longest song until they're doing Sgt. Pepper's and, and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds comes along. So it feels like it's a verse too long. And I Again, a bit like the bongos on You're Gonna Lose That Girl. I reckon the hi-hat's been overdubbed. Again, at the suggestion of George Martin, I would assume... I might be wrong, but I'd assume to try and give it some pace and energy to carry it, sort of keep the energy up and keep it moving. So it feels like it's going because otherwise it's, yeah, it just feels like it's a verse too long. And it's when it's just McCartney moaning about Jane Asher again, it's. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which we'll get to with the lyrics. I mean, from a production point of view, um, for me, like with Day Tripper, it is a, that era where Martin doesn't have a lot to balance um, in the in the composition and the arrangement, other than the voices, which he does expertly. Um, uh, the hi hat doesn't jar as much for me. I, I do think it's there because I think the rhythm is so slow, slightly different. That I don't think they've quite landed the the, the right way to place the beat, so they've, they've, they're trying things with it. It is a bit disappointing to hear there's an actual mistake on the bass around the 1 minute 20 mark mm. going into a chorus, which is right on the change. And I know you do get mistakes in the here and there, in, especially in the, in the early recordings, but then once you've heard that one, it's, it's a bit hard to unhear. Yeah. And um, and I, I find it hard to believe again that, that, that they or they George Martin didn't, think oh we're gonna to have to do something with that but um so i'm going to deduct a little from it for the from the halfway mark and go down to 48 for production on this one so that just leaves the lyrics um and i think we're slightly back in the arrogant camp here again um i mean you said earlier this is um about paul mccartney's then girlfriend jane asher yeah um, and was it something to do with her wanting a career in life of her own, I think? Well, she was a successful actress and she remained a successful actress as well. And so she was never really particularly dominated by being the the typical Beatle, boy, Beatle boyfriend, the typical <laughs> Beatle girlfriend. And he, he clearly had issues with that and... He worked them out in song, really. But, you know, they stayed together for a, a good few years after this, really, until it broke down and he met Linda. And Yeah. I mean, you probably wouldn't have known that. I mean, well, some people would have done. But I imagine that the average person probably wouldn't have known that context at the time. Um, and it, it can read a bit more like a breakup song than a frustrated overbearing boyfriend song. If you choose to listen to it in that way. Mm. Um, and most of us can relate to the bitterness and sorrow that, you, you know, a breakup can bring when you're young. So, I mean, if you, like you say, you bring yourself to lyrics, um, you, you bring your own experiences and reading to lyrics. And, and for that, I think it's kind of straight down the line for me. I'm going to give it 50 for the lyrics, which brings the overall average, um, to 51 mm. so finally we have our first cover to pop up um because we are including the covers as well as long as they were recorded and released and the first one to pop up is you really got a hold on me
So, Paul, you really got a hold on me. What, what can you tell us about this? I could tell you that it appeared on With the Beatles, which came out on the 22nd of November 1963, a date of some repute in history. Um, yeah, everyone knows what that's about. We don't need to talk about that. Go and listen to a history podcast. It was recorded on a couple of dates, but mainly, I think, in October of 63. They did lots of takes of this to try and get it right. And you've got George Martin playing piano on it as well. In fact, I think the October recording they didn't use. That was possibly just another attempt, but they ended up going back to one of the ones from July. But it's a Smokey Robinson song originally, and it was it was originally a Smokey Robinson B-side, but it just proved so much more popular for Smokey in, in the States that it it was played more, and it, it got to number eight in the Billboard chart in America and number one on the R&B chart. But... I don't think it was ever released by Smokey over here at the time, so the Beatles had got hold of some imported version of it or it made its way into their hands somehow, and it just becomes a, a cover on with the Beatles. And what a savvy um, decision that was Yeah. for the Beatles, you know, to, to pick up on a song that uh, had... A, a, you know, a successful song in America that hadn't really been released over here, and what a song to pick up on as well. Um, I mean, anyway, before I start on the mu- talking about the music to this, for, I will declare that for covers, lyrics will get zero as a default because I don't think even the Beatles can take credit for words they didn't write, um, which will put covers at a bit of a disadvantage in the ranking. But I did nearly exclude them altogether when I was thinking about this show, so covers will just have to put up with it. But anyway. I think this is a great example of how that really shouldn't matter because the music to this is awesome. Everything from Ringo's cymbal shuffle to John's, you know, soulful rendition just gels and shows what a tight and exciting unit these guys were right from the off. I'm not going to say much else because it, it is just, as a rendition of that song, just near perfect for me, which without being original or groundbreaking, earns it a high flying 78 for the music from me. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, any disagreements with that, Paul? No, I mean, it, it's it's relatively simple, but it's also them doing something in a different sort of tempo, time signature type thing. So it's, it's a sort of 12-8 pattern to this as opposed to everything else on the album. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. So it's it's something a bit different. and it's But yeah, it's a really good good cover of, of a song. And they loved Smokey Robinson. And they they don't do it a disservice at all. No, they certainly don't, and you can, you know, you can hear um, it's th- their influence, um, the influence it has on them. Obviously, in this literal just recording of this song, and but that twelve eight time signature, and carrying on later down the line with things like "Oh Darling" and things like that. Um, it's it's great, and, and from a production point of view, I think George Martin does the only thing that he needed to do with this song, which he points the microphones at the right places and gets the right take. It's interesting to hear that they, they, they had another stab and went back to an earlier one because it would have been a shame for them not to use this one. It is simplistic in its design, so only so much in this to score, but I think it warrants a 76 for production, giving it an overall average of 51.3. And we're off. Five down, 210 left to go, and even one ruttles for a good measure. So, our first rundown at number five out of five songs scored, we have You're Going to Lose That Girl. At number four, we have You Won't See Me. At number three, we have You Really Got a Hold On Me, a cover. And at number two, we have Day Tripper. Whereas at number one, we have Something.
thanks for joining me, Paul. And before I let you go, do you want to tell the good people about any projects you've got going, your podcasts? Yeah, I've got two podcasts, one which is super specific and one which is probably a bit more universal. If you're into the police procedural novels of Ed McBain set in the fictional 87th Precinct, then you can go and find me at Hark, the 87th Precinct podcast, which is a book-by-book read-through of that with extra bits and pieces thrown in. And I have a new podcast for lovers of silly musical things, all about novelty songs, however you'd want to define that, called the Head Ballet Podcast. And you can just find those things pretty easily anywhere by searching for their names. Very good. And I can recommend them both heartily. As for me, um, you can find out about my writing and some of my other work at garyabbott.co.uk. That's Gary with two R's and Abbott with two B's and two T's. And you can get in touch at Gary underscore Abbott on Twitter. Um, if you've enjoyed listening, please tell a friend and rate and share us on your preferred podcast platform and social media. And join us next week for the next five. So, goodbye, Paul. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.